0: Uh, and friends of ours for a long time. He leads Reading Family Church, uh, which is a, a church of substance now. That started as a small church plant. So he's journeyed the journey. We're helping to go on. Uh, and he's a great speaker. And so it's a brilliant to have him this morning. So let's put our hands together and welcome Sean. Uh, so my, uh, as uh, Howard said, my name is Sean. And uh, Liz and I have just changed our car. We've had our last car for over 10 years. A number of reasons we've just changed it. And I was driving up here this morning. And you know, it's like day two. You just don't know how to drive your car yet. (laughs) And uh, I can't find fifth or sixth gear yet. So I'm clunking around. And Liz said to me just before Swindon, well, she said, oh, it's hard driving a new car, isn't it then? And I thought, oh, actually, that was such a precise statement. I said, Liz... When we picked up our car on Friday, did I say that? She said, yes, you are utterly frustrated with me in the way that you're driving. So I'm arriving here today as someone who's mortally offended my wife on Friday. (laughs) And we had to do business somewhere between Swindon and Cheltenham for a little mix-up on Friday. So anyway, we've arrived here. Uh, She's just moved towards the back, not because she can't stand my preaching, she's so cross with me. She's got a bit of a stiff back and she's just better standing through the preach. And so as Howard said, I'm here this morning with something I feel that God has for us, for you as a church, something that is living in me and Liz at the moment. And I'm going to be talking about Jesus and the tax man. Jesus and the tax man. That's not just because we're nearly at the end of the tax year, I want us to spend some time reflecting upon when Jesus met a taxman, and the outcome of that, at least one of them, was that a radical disciple of Jesus was birthed. And his community knew it. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that this taxman's life had been transformed for the better of his local community. And everyone knew it. So if you have a Bible, please turn to, uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. If you've come here this morning and you've not got a Bible, don't worry, it's behind me now on the screen what we're going to read from. And I'm using the New Living Translation. I find it helpful in stories about Jesus. It just reads so smoothly. So if your version of the Bible is different, uh, it, The NLT version I'm using is okay. It will come up behind you, but it may be a little bit different for the copies that you're reading. And so, before I go any further, I just need to pray to settle my brain down. I need to hear from God now, not follow headings on a piece of paper. And you need your heart soft. And that's something that the Spirit of God does for us. He helps us. Holy Spirit, I pray, come amongst us this morning. Help me to speak clearly, to follow your promptings, not just these notes. And I pray for every heart in this room, even with the children's workers, we pray for soft, tender hearts, Holy Spirit, that we may receive the good news of Jesus and be changed by it, that the communities around us would, would know we've encountered Christ, not just this this morning, but in our lives. So come, Holy Spirit, do this work in us, I pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 1 through to 10. The Bible says this, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if, yeah, right, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. I'm guessing uh, throughout this week, most of you haven't caught up on the background on this passage, so I want to help you with that now. Behind me now is a map of uh, Jesus' geography. So this episode happened in Jericho, which is just to the north of the Dead Sea. Now Jericho was this main thoroughfare up to their capital city, which was Jerusalem. So often, if you went to Jerusalem, you would come up through the Dead Sea, you'd come up through to Jericho, and then you'd make your way up this rocky path all the way up to Jerusalem. It was in Jericho when blind Bartimaeus cried out, "'Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me!' So this was Jericho, this was Jericho whose walls were collapsed, the city was moved and uh, destroyed several times. So it's not the original Jericho but it was very close to that. So Jericho uh, was on the main route up to the capital city and as such it was quite wealthy because as people carried up there they would stop off, they would stay over but it also came a place for tax collection. Because people were going on up and the way that taxes worked there, there wasn't taken from your salary, they were collected by the Roman oppressors through tax collectors. So as you came up through there and seasons like Passover, there'd be lots of festivals up in Jerusalem. So as you came on up, often you'd be called to account in terms of the taxes or the trading that you're going to do support the festivals at Jerusalem. Herod, when he was the governor, the Roman governor of the era, he put a palace there to ensure and to remind everyone at this important strategic trading city that Roman authority was there. It was that kind of place. So Jericho, we can understand the geography, lots of movement through it. Jesus went through Jericho as he was going up to Jerusalem and it was a place of tax collection. In those days, if you were a tax collector, you're often thought of as a tax farmer, the Roman authorities, uh, what they did, they would come up with a sum of money that needed to be collected from a province which was broken down to cities and they would attacks, uh, talk to local people uh, generally Jews and they would say to them, I want you to be a tax collector you need to raise this amount of money if you raise more than that I'm not going to ask any questions what I do need to know, need you need to get this sum of money, no one would know that sum of money apart from the tax collector and his other helpers But he would raise that sum and then he would do more. And that was his incentive to raise money. And they were thought of as farmers. They had to raise taxes and it didn't matter how. But the locals would see tax collectors as collaborators. Like in France in the Second World War. If you collaborated with the Germans, you were hated. Tax collectors were seen as collaborators. They were working with their foreign oppressor, with their army, but worse than that, they were oppressing their own people by taking more than the governor asked for. So they were regarded as traitors. People hated them. If you know anything of the Second World War, when liberation came to France, the collaborators were sorted out very quickly. That's just how it works. There was no easiness around tax collectors. They were traitors. They were collaborators. They were despised. Worse still, they were rich. They were rich off the backs of their brothers and sisters. It was a hand-to-mouth existence. Typically, you'd earn something in the day. You'd spend it to buy food or firewood or whatever. You didn't have savings. So you are literally taking the food from people and you knew it. You would have had lists and you would know how much each person is given, how much more you think you could take from them. You'd make an assessment of them. These tax collectors were hated people. You're probably unaware, but we've jumped into the story at a time called Passover, which was a time when God's people, who were now oppressed under Roman rule, they would remember that long, long, long ago, our forebearers, they were once in a place of slavery and oppression, And God raised up a champion, Moses, who led them out of slavery into freedom and ultimately victory into the promises of God. And at Passover, they would remember that. There was a whole festival reminding the Jewish people that once they were oppressed by uh, foreigners, but now God had raised up a champion, a leader, who led them into uh, freedom out of slavery. And it was at Passover time, they were aware of this. This was in their thinking that God had raised up someone to bring them divine salvation. And as a people, they also had a hope of a Messiah, another saviour was going to come. And this was going to be a God-given restorer, another God-given champion. And he was going to be a descendant from Abraham. He was going to be a descendant from King David. And he was going to come, and they understood it to mean a military champion was going to come and overthrow the, the Roman oppressors. And just as Moses had to be holy in order for God to use him and supernaturally save his people, they knew that the Saviour had to be holy. He couldn't be defiled in any way. That this Saviour was going to come overthrow the oppressor and usher in a golden age once again. So all of this is in people's mind. The geography, their sense of history and their sense of hope for the future. And then Jesus comes and he's heading up to Jerusalem. If you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, you know that soon people start saying, Hosanna, he he is the one, it's Jesus, he is the one. But they're not shouting that just yet. And to help us catch up with the story, because I want scripture to speak to you this morning, we're going to act it out. So this is what we're going to do. So we've got a blue-eyed Jesus here, only because you've got no one from Middle East origin here that I can see. So Tom here is going to be our Jesus. You're going to stand over there. Ed's going to come and be our Zacchaeus, our short guy. You're going to stand over here. And all of you guys now are going to stand up very, very quickly and stand over there shielding Jesus from Zacchaeus. If you can stand up now, all of you stand up. So Zacchaeus, he's heard about Jesus and he's curious. He doesn't know much about him, so he comes and he tries to see Jesus, but the crowd realize the traitor he is here, the collaborator's here, the sinful one is here, and so they shield him. And Zacchaeus is short, sure he can't push in to touch or see Jesus. So come before him, shut him out with your backs. Turn away from seeing, shut him out. You don't want him to have anything to do with Jesus. You don't want him defiled. You hate him. He is going to get his canuppance. And so Zacchaeus is a bright man, albeit short. He runs ahead... He was a dignified man. He shouldn't be running. But there's something propelling Zacchaeus, we don't know why, to know something more of Jesus. He just wants to get a glimpse of him. So he climbs a sycamore fig tree, which would be on the side of the road, most likely outside of Jericho, on the way out to Jerusalem. And then Jesus and his posse, they think they've done a great job. They're now moving the blue-eyed Jesus. He's not at all like that. Jesus was not an Englishman. So they're walking along here. And then the crowd, most likely, they spot Zacchaeus up in a tree. And that's most likely where Jesus got the name Zacchaeus from, because they're grumbling and moaning. He's there. They despise him. And they, they, they hate the fact that he's now looking down. And so what now happens is that Jesus hears the grumbling people. He picks up on the animosity towards him. And then... Zacchaeus does the most remarkable thing. I want you to shout this. Now you stay there. Jesus says this. Zacchaeus, that's your I line. That. Zacchaeus, quick, come down. Quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Must be a guest in your home today. Okay, so Zacchaeus runs down in great joy. <laughs> Is that the best you've got? Okay, all right. Oh, we we'll do that. We we'll do that. We we'll do it. Now, displeased, grumbling people. Okay, just so we say if you overplay the pantomime, I lose my point. Okay? So you are now displeased, you are now grumbling, and I want you to say this: he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. But you are curious, so you follow Zacchaeus and Jesus over here, and you're now watching on. They've not got homes like ours where we shut the door. Middle Eastern homes would have been open. Most often he was rich. We've had a big courtyard. People would have been looking in as to what's going on. It's how it works in their culture. And they're realising that suddenly honour now has come upon Zacchaeus. Jesus has brought honour upon Zacchaeus. And they're they're, they're displeased. They're grumbling. This is a traitor. This is a collaborator. They'd much rather have it on their terms. But it's not on their terms. And Zacchaeus responds to this honour by saying this. He stands up in front of everyone in his courtyard and says this I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if, yeah, right, if I have cheated people on their taxes, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. I will give them back four times as much. And incredibly, Jesus approves of this. And he declares publicly that the traitor, the collaborator, the one who's robbed their children of food, is truly a son of Abraham. You say, you are truly a son of Abraham. You are truly a son of Abraham. There we are. Thank you. Please, can you sit down? Please sit down. Now the reason I wanted to act it out, because we can read the Bible story, if you've been coming along to church, that is familiar to you, and you cannot see the gospel in what we've just acted out, because we're over-familiar with this great truth. So did you notice the gospel in that story? Did you see that Jesus expressed and demonstrated costly love, and acceptance to a traitor. Mm. But more than that, did you see the hostility transfer that went on there? Mm. Suddenly, the crowd that were cross at Zacchaeus and were shutting him out, by Jesus' action, the hostility transferred to Jesus. Mm. They're grumbling against Jesus now. He has gone to be the home of a notorious sinner. Mm. I mean, that's remarkable, isn't it? If you've known public hostility and then someone, a good person, does something and that hostility is transferred onto that good person, the sense of relief that you're now in their shelter, that somehow they're taking the rap from the hostile crowd and not you. Did, Did you see that in there? Can you imagine what that must have done to Zacchaeus? Suddenly the hostility, he was shut out. And that transfer took place. Jesus came and gave him a new status. Jesus came and accepted Zacchaeus and brought honour to his home just by going there. That's incredible that that happened. Jesus came and he restored Zacchaeus and he declared that he was a son of Abraham before Zacchaeus had done anything. Zacchaeus received unearned, unmerited favor. He hadn't, hadn't done anything yet. He'd, yes, he'd made a declaration, and it's vitally important that we declare that Jesus is Lord. But before we'd done or acted upon that, Zacchaeus had been restored and been accepted. I mean, it's remarkable the traitor, the collaborator, but he's just made a declaration of trust. And now he's restored, he's accepted, he's received grace un-earned, unmerited, unending favour. Jesus showed compassion. He didn't tease Zacchaeus for his faults and his sins, for his traitorous, rebellious, selfish actions. He saw beyond that. I guess he saw him made in the image of God. I, say, I guess he saw him hidden in his own righteousness and he had compassion upon him. It's amazing that when Jesus' compassion touched Zacchaeus' life, what happened? Zacchaeus himself lifts oppression in his community. It's remarkable, Jesus' compassion is shown... Zacchaeus receives that compassion, is overwhelmed by that compassion and there's something in that transfer. Now Zacchaeus' life is changed and he lifts oppression, albeit partially, presumably he'll still be a tax collector, we don't know, but certainly he's no longer going to be cheating, he's no longer been raising more than is required. That when compassion of Jesus is received and believed upon, oppression is lifted albeit partially, until Jesus returns and finally makes all things new. But oppression gets lifted when the compassion of Jesus is received in people's hearts. It's remarkable when we look at Zacchaeus. His heart is changed. There was something in him that compelled him to get a glimpse of Jesus, even when he was shut out by the crowds. I'm guessing that's the spirit of God within him. But there was nothing in Zacchaeus that can change his own heart. There was nothing within him that can have a massive lifestyle change. What Zacchaeus needed to do was to receive something from Christ. And when he received that honor, that commendation, that acceptance, it changed his heart. Zacchaeus needed something external to change his heart. And that's the point. We can't change our hearts ourselves no amount of self-help, self-discipline, whatever you decided to not do for Lent or do do for Lent, nothing is going to change your heart. Only God can do that. And only Christ can do that. Only encountering Him and receiving something from Him changes your heart, changes my heart. And when a traitor like Zacchaeus responds To that compassion, costly love is then shown to his community. This traitor responds and then demonstrates costly love to him. I I mean, it's costly. That's, That's what happens when you run into Jesus. The Bible says, actually, it's not just Zacchaeus was the traitor. The Bible says that... Anyone who hasn't put their trust in God, hasn't put their trust in his son, Jesus Christ, is a traitor. But actually, we don't have to stay in that place. Because when traitors run into Jesus, we can demonstrate costly love to a community. Did you see that Zacchaeus made a public declaration? He said... Jesus, because you have brought honour to me, because I've received favour from you, because you have given me a new status, because you have shown compassion to me, I'm going to publicly declare that I'm going to give half of whatever I earn to the poor. And if, and everyone's going, if, what you are talking about? There's no if about it, Zacchaeus. You have cheated us, robbed our children of food. I'm going to pay back four times as much to those people I've cheated. God's word told him he had to pay back two or three times for. Zacchaeus went beyond even what the Bible asked him to pay back. He said, I'm going to effectively give back four times whatever I've cheated. And he declares it publicly. Wasn't it a quiet thing? Just between him and Jesus, and so no one really knew. Jesus moved on, he could go back. He declares it publicly, and those people who he cheated heard him say it. And they would have held him to account. The public were supposed to hold the followers of Jesus to account. You said you'd live like this, come good on that. Did you see that in there? That's all part of the gospel. It's not supposed to be a private hidden faith. It's something that those people who seem far from Christ can call us to account. I'm hoping this gospel story is speaking to your hearts. I'm hoping that the gospel is interrogating your hearts right now. As you've seen the good news of Jesus in this simple parable of when a tax man met Jesus. Because when the gospel is illuminated to your hearts, and I hope that is the case right now, I hope right now the Holy Spirit is illuminating the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. Not all of it, but some of it that you've heard this morning. That when the Holy Spirit illuminates the gospel, it starts to interrogate your heart. It starts to interrogate your motives and your actions and your value systems that you're living your life with. One of the things that I found out about when the Holy Spirit illuminates the gospel in my heart is it exposes me as I was once a traitor. When the gospel is communicated clearly, it exposes traitors... And the religious. Because the Bible says that everyone who's living without any regard to God or putting their faith in Jesus, you're a traitor to the great king. When the gospel is proclaimed, it exposes who the traitors are and it exposes who the religious are. Those people who think by their own actions they're right with God. They have good standing before God because of their lifestyle choices or the things they do do or things they don't do. When the gospel is proclaimed, it exposes the traitors and the religious. Even now, it could well be exposing that you're a grumbler. That you're a spectator. You're just looking on at what Jesus is doing. Once you were a radical follower of Jesus, but now you're just a grumbler, grumbling what Jesus is doing in other people's lives and not yours. Or maybe you're just spectating, just watching what Jesus is doing in other people, watching other people seriously follow Jesus, become a radical follower of Jesus. That's what the Gospel does. It penetrates it, interrogates our own hearts and motives. But it doesn't leave us without hope. See, it produces in us a sense of bankruptcy. When the gospel is correctly preached, it leaves you thinking, I am bankrupt, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to bring to this party except faith and trust in Jesus. And so whilst we recognise Zacchaeus was left totally bankrupt, when he's following Jesus, he's got no resources of his own now and a demand from a community upon him that's way beyond his means, and he's got to make a lot of good relationships back. He's bankrupt. That's not the end of the story, because he's been given a new status. He's been restored. He's, he's now been one who is going to lift depression upon his people. When the gospel interrogates our hearts, it produces in us public declarations. When you are baptized. That was your public declaration that you are going to be a radical follower of Jesus, that you have received compassion from God and that you've been raised to a new life. I'm hoping you've been baptised in water because that was your public declaration that you're going to be a radical follower of Jesus, that you're going to work for oppression to be lifted on your local communities. And we, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are to call you to account to that. Are you a radical follower of Jesus? Or was that a story of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, for Ben and Mo, 50, 60 years ago? I mean, this is, we need to remind ourselves of these things. We're called, like Zacchaeus, to be radical disciples, radical followers of Jesus. Radical means that you are a complete exhaustive follower of Jesus. That the entire being, your very bones within you, your very drive, passions and energy are for Jesus. That you're absolutely sold out for him as best you're able in your season of life. I know life has its ups and downs but as best you're able with every bone, with every morsel of energy you can muster, with every rigour You're a far reaching, radical follower of Jesus. Because Zacchaeus put it all out there. Twelve days ago, I sat with a guy in our front room. He's been in a civil partnership with a man for 10 years. He's come back to Jesus. He's now celebrating that relationship. Mm -hmm. And he sat there. I didn't say anything, I just listened to him and he said, I know what I now need to do. Somehow he's got to unravel himself. From this, that's what he feels God has told him to to unravel himself from this civil partnership. He's going to lose his home, his friendship groups, his companionship. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know when's the last time I was such a radical decision like that. I, I, my concern is, I'm going back 15, 17 years ago when I decided to quit my job to plant the church. Really? I'm sitting in this room with this guy I'm thinking, I'm not sure our church is going to be able to love you enough to fill the gap in your life. Because yeah. we're not radical followers of Jesus yet. If someone from Islam left their faith and joined our church, I just don't know, after two or three months, if they're going to find family in a way that they will need if their family ostracises them from the Islamic faith. Yes. What this dear brother... Needs as he sat with me, is for me to be a radical disciple of Jesus Christ. It's totally sold out and everyone knows I am and I'm all on my game and I'm in a community of people who've heard my public declaration and stir me on when I'm discouraged and when I fall back and they pick me up and say, sure, we were there, we, we saw your declaration and we're with you now. Friends, I'm here this morning to tell you, God first needs to be a radical disciple making church because Cheltenham and the nations need it so when the gospel interrogates our hearts it doesn't just cause radical disciples it raises up radical leaders Howard Andy Tom and Steve and you leadership couples you need to be radical leaders you will set the pace of this church you will. It's just how it goes. You can't produce something that you're not. It's not how it works. One of the many things I've learnt from Ben. One of the reasons I still press on, we met Ben and Mo on Friday, had lunch with them. I can't remember the last time I had lunch with someone and we ended up praying and prophesying for 45 minutes afterwards only to be stopped when my kids came in from school. Such has the t- spiritual temperature in our church, in our family diminished that we don't do that after lunch with friends anymore. Man, they're in their 70s and they're still propelling me towards Jesus. It's how it works. I need it. It's like life to my bones. You need it as well. We need to be around radical men and women, leaders of local churches who are full of faith. They know they've met Jesus. Because that's what you need as a church. And that's what Cheltenham needs. So this is what we're going to do. You're all kind of looked in stunned silence. Am <laughs> I always like this? I want to be always like this. We're going to pray for the, the kind of leadership couples as a starter and then Howard's going to take it on from there. So what we're going to do, we're going to have the leadership couple, one in that corner. So Steve and Joe, can you stand over in that corner? If we can have uh, Andy and Vic in that corner. If we can have uh, Howard and Nate in this corner. And who might say them? Tom and Lucy in this corner. And we're going to stand around. Is that okay, Howard? Can we go for yes. this? this? Is a good plan. Friends, there is a sense of urgency because I'm going to get in a car sometimes this afternoon. But God's word, I'm hoping, is going to be dwelling and living within you and stirring you. And part of the stewarding of that are your leadership couples, are your elders in this community. So if you can move now, leadership couples to those four corners, then what we want you to do for the rest of us, is are going to get out of our seats, move towards them. If you're able to, lay your hands on them in an appropriate way. You know what I mean by that? don't suffocate them, uh, let's lay hands on them, pray that they would be radical disciples, radical leaders uh, following Jesus as best they're able and then how is going to take a you okay with that? Mm-hmm. So please can you stand, please can you move, let's pray our best prayers over the leadership couples of this church and then we'll see where the spirit takes us from there. So if you keep moving around, get as close to them as you possibly can. Just start praying, start stirring up the spirit of God in you to pray for them. Come now, let's pray. Let's make some noise if we possibly can. It's not supposed to be a still, quiet moment in the life of the church. This is the people of God, begging God for radical leaders, leading the people of God that is God first. Father, we...